Lord Jesus, we've come to meet with you. If we came for anything less, we've missed it. We have gathered here to experience your presence, to worship your name, ultimately to be transformed by your Holy Spirit. Would you do your work today? Not us becoming a little bit better version of us, but us becoming more like Jesus Christ. In character and priorities, God, do your work this morning, we pray. As always, may I decrease and may you increase. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're finishing up uh, a series on community, uh, on kingdom community. Uh, This message is going to be a little different from some of the ones in the past. Uh, A lot of the messages, when I normally try to create a message, I think in terms of a rifle. A single bullet making one big hole, kind of, we, we take one idea, one theme, and we kind of go deep with it. Today, what we're going to do, it's a lot more like a shotgun with birdshot. We're going to be, we're going to kind of just touch on a lot of little things. There's going to be things that I touch on that could be their own sermon, and we're going to deal with it for 30 seconds and move on. Uh, what I'm trying to do this morning is answer the question, what does kingdom community really look like? We've talked about why it's important. We've talked about how God wants to use it in our lives. Without community, we basically are ineffective and and we can't grow just on our own. I've tried to give some of the why behind community. What I want to do today is paint more of a picture. And so again, think that, that bird shot hitting the side of a barn and just a whole bunch of little holes. But when you step back, you kind of see the pattern. You know what I'm saying? That's what we're shooting for here this morning to go, what does kingdom community look like? And here's the first place that I'm going to start. I've touched on this a couple times before, but I want to be so clear with this. When we talk about this idea of kingdom community, this idea of the the linking arms of believers, of doing life together, of growing together, challenging one another, this kind of thing, what a lot of people do is they go, yeah, the church needs to create a program so that we can have better community. And here's what I'm going to tell you today. As we go through every different piece of this, it is about individual ownership. It is about you making the choice to go and seek these things in your life. It is about you making the choice. We talked before about the cost of community, the sacrifice it takes, time, energy. It's you making that choice. If when we talk about being the church, you think, well, I hope the leaders create a program so that that happens... It doesn't work like that. I want to tell you, as as your church leadership, the way that we view what we do is we want to create environments where this kind of community is possible. But it's not if you just come to the event, you have community. You have to take ownership of it. You have to make some changes. And listen, when I say you, I'm including myself in that. It's not simply if I show up when the doors are open, community will automatically happen. We have to make these choices on our own behalf. Again, as a church, we want to create the kind of environments where this community can grow and can flourish. But if none of us are willing to make some of the sacrifices and some of the changes, all we have is some events. All we have is a good Sunday morning where hopefully they liked the music and the message made some sense. We'll see you next week. And we go away unchanged. We have to be willing to make some changes in our own personal life not just hope the church makes some changes. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So, as we come in uh, to this kind of, again, snapshot picture of what kingdom community looks like, we're going to be using Acts chapter 2 
as kind of our, our guide to get us through it. Most of the time when people talk about the church being what the church should be, when we talk about like Christian community, most people in their minds go, yeah, we need to get back to what the early church was like because they had some things figured out, right? Mm, sometimes yes, sometimes no. In some ways they were way more messed up than us and in other ways they got it, okay? They were not perfect at all. But in Acts chapter 2, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uh, in ver- we're going to look at verse 41 through 47 if you're turning there. Luke gave us kind of a picture of, man, when things were clicking on all cylinders, here's what the early church was about. And, he- and it worked. So let's take a look at it. Starting in verse 41, Acts chapter 2. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and their property. They distributed the proceeds to all as everyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. Okay, so there's a lot in there, and we're not going to take a whole lot of time to drill down deep on any of it, just kind of touching on it. So here's my plan is this week I'm going to email everyone that's part of our email list. I'm going to email you an outline um, so that you can, if you want to come back and work through some of the stuff you're able to, because we're just going to kind of be moving. If you're taking notes, there's going to be a whole lot to take notes on this morning, and so I'm sorry, uh, but I will try to give you something this week to come back and work through if that's helpful to you. So let's just start uh, churning through this. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who uh, accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Part of this kingdom community, what does kingdom community look like? First of all, and this seems like a no-brainer, but you got to say it, it was a community of believers. Okay? You have to be a member of the kingdom to have kingdom community. Yes? Okay. This is an easy one. Okay? They were all believers. It says that those who accepted the message were baptized. It didn't just say they they filled out a prayer card and went on their way. Like They were actually taking steps of obedience to the Lord through baptism. And about 3,000 people were added to them. The church was growing, but this was believers getting together. Not just, we've talked before, like there's other kinds of community. You want to lose weight? Get other people that are like-minded, want to lose weight with you, and move forward together. Is that necessarily kingdom community? No. It could be anybody. Does that mean it's bad or it's worse? No. But if we're going to grow into the church God calls us to, we have to have community with brothers and sisters. Again, it seems like a no-brainer, but you have to say some of these things. We need each other. And I'm struck by the diversity of this community of believers. 3,000 people were added to them. And this is talking about the day of Pentecost. And these people are from all over the known world. Some of them are Jews, like, by birth. Some of them have converted over to Judaism. They speak different languages. They come from different cultures. But they were all brought together. See, oftentimes when we think of a community of believers, when we think about our church, we think a room filled with people that look just like me, think just like me, act just like me. And when there's someone that doesn't look like me, maybe this isn't the church for them. I don't know if they belong here. Listen, I hope that these aren't our go-to thoughts, but they can be. 
Because uh, to be a Christian, doesn't it mean to, to look like this cookie cutter and to dress like me and to have the same values as me and to be in the same social class as me and economic class as me, to have the same needs as me? It didn't in the early church. We're going to look at it here in a couple minutes, but there was those that were beggars and some who were previously blind. There were those who were in the household of the king and they were all coming together as the church. There was men, there was women. There was those that lived in Jerusalem and those that lived hundreds if not thousands of miles away in totally different cultures. And they were all coming together as a community of believers. There was diversity. All were welcome who had been baptized into his name and wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. All were welcome. Again, we're not going to spend a ton of time. Moving on. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They were all devoted in the same direction. They were all locked arms and moving together toward a common goal. And it gives four things. The apostles' teaching... The scriptures. The word of God set the direction, the tone, and the priorities for their lives and for their time together. The word of God was a part of everything that they would do together. That doesn't mean everything was a Bible study. But as they would talk about life, as they would talk about parenting, as they would talk about all of these different things, the word of God was the foundation for it all. It set the direction and the tone of everything that they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. Remember, we looked at fellowship, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago. The Greek word koinonia, it literally means partnership. They, They locked arms together. You fall, I fall. I succeed, you succeed. We are in this together. We're moving forward. There's no when things get hard, I kind of throw you off and move down the road. This is a partnership. We're in this thing together. They had fellowship, unity. The breaking of bread. These are all things that they prioritized, that they devoted themselves to. Now listen, this didn't just mean that they stopped and took five minutes and took communion at every one of their meetings. Back then, communion was, they would sit down and have a, a literal meal together, much like we will do tonight. And here's the things that it symbolized when they would sit down and break bread together, when they would have this meal together. It symbolized equality in terms of this, value. For me to sit down and break bread with you was to say you and me were equals. This is why the Jews wouldn't ever break bread with Gentiles before Jesus. They said, no, 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 because we're up here and you're down there. You're pagans, you're outsiders. We will only break bread with people that are like us. This is why they, they got on Jesus so much. They went, you're eating with sinners and prostitutes, with tax collectors? Because what they saw is Jesus was raising them up to say your value is the same as mine. And and the world kind of raged against that. They didn't know what to do with it. But here we find the early church, again, every socioeconomic, gender, whatever barriers we can come up with, they were crossing them and breaking bread together. I value you. God paid the same price for you that he did for me. We're equals. Let's break bread. There's no hierarchy. There's no, I'm a little better than you because I look like this, do this, act like this, have this gift, whatever it was. We're equals. Let's break bread together. And they were focusing on what they had in common. Again, different parts of the world, different cultures. There was all kinds of differences that came into it. But when they got together, 
They said, let's focus on the one thing we know we have in common, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He bled for us. He was buried for us. He rose again for us. No matter what differences we may have, we can move forward together on that foundation. They continually came back to refocus on what they had in common, not what they had apart. We as a church, we as just people, are so quick to, to come in wondering, where are they different from me? Where are they wrong and I'm right? Steve and I were having a conversation this morning of, of how quick we are to be skeptical. Uh, we were looking at uh, another church, like another denomination. We were kind of looking to see how we line up um, for some different reasons. But we came in, both of us, admitting to each other, going, I came in expecting them to be wrong in certain areas, and I was kind of on the vigil. Where are they different? Where, where are we white and where are they wrong, whatever? Instead of coming in and going, these are brothers and sisters in Christ, look at all the things we have in common. It, it's a backwards view that we tend to start from. The early church came in and said, if we can agree on this point, we can move forward together. If we have this in common, let's have fellowship. Let's partner together and advance the kingdom. Finally, they, they devoted themselves to prayer. When they came together, there was a desire to thank God together, to seek God's guidance and presence together, and to lift one another up. It would be absurd for them to sit down and have a meal, hear someone else's struggle, struggle and go, that's tough, good luck, I'm out. It was absurd. We're the people of God. If you have this struggle, let's take it to the Lord together. If you've had this victory and things are going well, let's rejoice and praise together. Let's, man, this is a tough one. We're not sure where to go. Let's seek the guidance and the presence of God together. It was their natural. For us, we need to be reminded of it. All too often is when we're driving home going, oh, we didn't pray. Darn it. We missed it. The early church saw, if we're not seeking God together, what are we really doing? Let's devote ourselves to the word. Let's really link arms and move forward together. Let's seek the power and presence of God together. Verse 43, they had divine expectation. Then, after doing those things, the fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. There was this sense of when we do those things, when we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer, God shows up. And this sense of, of the word uses, uses fear. Some would say awe. I think awe is like, it, it's, it's one of the better words that we have, but it still doesn't quite capture it. Because it wasn't just, whoa, cool. It was, we find ourselves, when we do this, God shows up. And when we're in the presence of the Almighty God, all of a sudden, I'm aware of who I am. And I don't belong here. And there's this sense of truly dread that can fall over us, that should fall over us. The fear of the Lord. Not, and, and Pastor Mark has preached on this, I don't know how many times throughout my history here, and it's beautiful. Not this fear that God might just flippantly get mad and start hitting everybody, because who knows what kind of a mood he's in that day. But this fear of he is completely other. He's up here, and when I see that, I realize where I am. And this sense of, should I even be in the room, comes on us. I'll, I'll share a very quick story about myself. Uh, when I was a new believer, um, I did what most new believers did, and I skipped straight to the book of Revelation. 
because uh, it's wise, right? Somebody was like, start in Matthew. So I was like, cool, Matthew, Revelation. And I made it four chapters in, and all of a sudden, he's giving this picture of, of what heaven is like, and there's these beasts that are worshiping before the throne day and night, and it describes them, and he's got these different animal parts and wings everywhere, and they're, they're covered in eyes. And I, literally reading it, and I'm in my room, and I just went, that's ridiculous. Like, what is he even talking about? Who comes up with this immediately? the fear of the Lord came on me. How dare you call the word of God ridiculous? And it wasn't this God so mad at me and he's, I just had this presence of, if this is what heaven is, who am I to judge? Who am I to say, why would he do it like that? This sense of awe and dread, truly shaking, fell over me. And I had one of the most worshipful experiences of my entire life. I was about a month old as a Christian, and I went, he is so other. Who am I to judge what he does? Come, Lord. You move how you want to move, and I'll just follow. The fear of the Lord came over the church because they were seeking him together, and they were experiencing him together. He was moving in signs and wonders and miracles, and fear was the proper response. How long has it been since we of a church have experienced together the fear of the Lord? We hope for some joy. We hope for some good singing. We hope for learning about the Lord. When was the last time a group of us together and that sense of awe fell over us? In Scripture, we see people all the time literally falling on their faces. It says the Apostle John, when he saw Jesus as Jesus really is, fell on his face as though he was dead. And that was his friend. He saw Jesus and went, uh, weak in the knees, I can't handle this. When was the last time we experienced any kind of awe because God was in the house? I believe if we truly become the kingdom community God's calling us to be, we will have those experiences where God is here. I can't stop smiling and trembling at the same time. It's a beautiful thing. They experienced and interacted with the presence of God. Verse 44 and 45, they were generous and charitable with one another. And we're going to camp out here for a little bit. They sold their possessions and property and distributed, to the proceed, or distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple uh, complex, broke bread from house to house. I read too far. That's okay. First of all, this is something that makes us super duper uncomfortable, especially as Americans, as Christians. They were generous towards each other with their possessions. We don't like that. We read that and we go, oh, socialism. <laughs> what, we're supposed to join a commune? Like, are you kidding me? Like, I can't even own my own car. It has to be our car. Like, what? We kind of take it to that degree, but to a point, that was their heart. Not because God said, how dare you own anything, but because every time they saw a need in their community, their heart was broken. And it was, yeah, let's sell property, let's sell houses, let's sell belongings, because it breaks my heart to see my brother or sister in need. They would meet each other's needs. And that came at great cost to them, but they did it joyfully because they were filled with generous spirits, charitable toward one another. One of the uh, best examples that I've heard of this, I've heard it a few different places, um, 
Francis Chan, who is a, a pastor and author, shares a story about uh, one day he was sitting in an elders meeting uh, with the elders of his church. And they were going through Acts chapter 2, and they were, they were praying and saying, Lord, we, we want to be the kind of church that it seems like you want us to be. What do we need to change, Lord? And just kind of inviting the Lord into their conversation. And, and kind of out of nowhere, one guy said, you know, uh, it sounds like according to what they're saying, none of us should have life insurance. Uh, because let me tell you what, you can go home and you can cancel your life insurance. Because if anything ever happens to you, I will take care of your wife and children. I will raise your kids like they're my own. You don't need to worry about it. You can cancel your retirement because as long as I'm here, you'll never go hungry. Like I, I will sell whatever I need to sell to take care of you because you're my brother. And they started going around this room making these commitments to one another. Now, am, am I saying that we all need to go home and cancel our 401ks or whatever? Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. Though maybe if that's what the Lord lays on your heart. But they had this camaraderie that I think looks very much like the early church that says, you don't need to worry about how are you going to fend for yourself. You are a part of us, and we take care of each other. If you have a need, we will come alongside you. We'll sacrifice what we have to sacrifice, because God is a charitable God, and he calls us to be charitable with each other. That makes us uncomfortable. This next part, I think, is the one of the greatest fights that we will have in our Christian walk, and that's that they were charitable and generous with each other in spirit. As we look through the rest of Scripture and seeing how the church comes together, we realize they weren't just selling some stuff, giving some money, and that was all they needed to do. They were charitable with one another in spirit. In their interactions, they were charitable. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Again, we're just going to hit these and kind of move through. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not conceited, it does not act improperly, it is not selfish, it is not provoked, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Really focusing on that last line here, when we come together as a body, do we bear all things? Am I willing to bear your burdens with you? Or do I kind of like go, ooh, that's uncomfortable, let's pray, and then I back out. Hopefully we'll read on Facebook that you got it figured out later. Am I willing to bear that with you? Believes all things? I tend to come in believing the worst about you. Let's be honest. I believe the best about myself and the worst about everyone else. You and I could do the exact same thing. You're driving down the road and you cut me off, and I assume it's because you're a jerk. How dare they? Don't they know? Like, what kind of community is this? Who drives like that? But guess what? When I cut you off, I had great reasons. I, like, I'm already two minutes late, and they're counting on me. I need to get down the road. Sorry. And off I go. I assume the best about myself and the worst about everybody else. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love assumes the best about the people I'm in community with. I tend to upgrade my motives and downgrade yours. Love does the opposite. You know what? I have a sinful heart. I know that like I didn't have the best intentions when I did that thing. Let's just be real with it. But am I willing to afford the other person the benefit of the doubt? Until proven wrong, I am going to give every brother and sister every benefit of every doubt. Are we willing to be that generous with each other and that charitable 
Because that kind of opens us up to be hurt a little bit, doesn't it? To be made a fool of, to be taken advantage of. But love hopes all things. Love is generous with those it's in community with. Love is generous, and this is where the real fight comes in for most of us. It's generous in the way that it speaks to one another. Proverbs 18.21, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The way that we speak to one another has real power. We have the ability to speak life and to build up, or to speak death and to tear down. And we're going to look here in the next few minutes. I just picked about six or seven different passages that deal with this. It was literally overwhelming, the amount of passages that deal with how we speak to one another. I, like, I had to at some point just cut it off and go, man, I can't give them 60 verses. But it's so prevalent in the Word that the way we speak to one another is not only vastly important to God, is vastly important to whether or not we will ever have community. Let's look at a few things here. And I've kind of set these up like as counterparts um, for some of them. We tend to gossip. We've been called to bless. We tend to, and listen, we've been doing this a long time. Some of us are pretty sly at it. Well, let me share a prayer request with you about, did you hear what's going on in Kim's life? Man, it's tough. Oh yeah, let me give you the dirt. And we go into it. We, we tend to air things that aren't ours. We tend to, when somebody hurts us, we talked last week about going to that brother or sister immediately. We tend to go get some other people on our side. Because, man, would you hear what she did? And like, yeah, I'm just venting. I just need, I just need to, to get it out because I don't want to be too mad at that person and blow up on them. So I'm just going to go talk to some other people about this. And we see it destroy community. It destroys trust. It destroys our brother and our sister when instead we've been called to bless. We've been called to lift up. We've been called to, again, assume the best until proven otherwise. And even when we are proved otherwise, bless those who curse us. We've been called to speak life over people, not gossip and slander. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only what is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We are called to speak life and grace. Far too often, we're just trying to get more people on our side. And so we gossip and we slander. I mean, guys, again, I, I couldn't put all of this in there. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and there's a spot where Paul is kind of giving a list. He says, these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Like, so he's, he's saying, like, this is a serious matter. And he talks about those that are sexually immoral, those that are idolaters. And then he talks about gossips and slanders in the same breath. And says, those who speak ill of each other have no share in the kingdom of God. And look, I'm not trying to put this on you like, if you've gossiped it all this week, you're out of the kingdom. Like, it, it, that's not what it was meant for. But he's going, those who allow this to become their character obviously have no part in the kingdom because those in the kingdom speak life and speak blessing. Criticism versus accountability. We are so quick to cut. We are so quick to come alongside and just let somebody know, I'm mad, or I think they did this wrong, and I could do it better, and it's pride, and it's arrogance. When we're called, when we see a brother or sister in error, to come and put our arms around them in hope of winning our brother back and walking with them toward the life that they should be leading. We're called to hold them accountable. Brother, this is killing you. 
and that breaks my heart. Let me walk with you in this. Let me speak life over you instead of just sitting back and going, why would he do that? That's so stupid. Doesn't he know he's, he's wrong? What, what is wrong with that guy? We tend so quickly towards criticism when we've been called to loving accountability to build our brother or sister up. We've looked at this passage a couple times, Hebrews 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. The writer of Hebrews is going, look, we don't have time to play games. The day of the Lord is approaching. None of us know when, but in the meantime, we need to encourage and build one another up. We don't have time to criticize. This last one is especially dear to my own heart. Sarcasm versus encouragement. This is an area where we as a church have adopted the world's sense of humor in a lot of ways. That's just how guys are when they get together. We're sarcastic. We cut one another. We find a weakness and we exploit it. Oh, you know, it's, we're just joking. We're just palling around. That's just what we do. But we're making jokes at the expense of our brother and sister. We are, whether we recognize it or not at the time, we're cutting their legs out from underneath them. Who doesn't love to have their faults spotlighted in front of other people, right? Best feeling in the world, right? No, we know because when it happens to us, the walls go up. We, many of us start to strike back because I gotta, if I can point it out there, no one will look at me. It's actually born out of insecurity. I'm, I'm unsure about who I am, and so I'm going to kind of blow their candle out to make mine burn a little brighter, is oftentimes where it's born out of. But we've allowed it into the church as just a part of, well, you know how they are. It's sin. I am never to make a joke at your expense. Can we joke around with one another? Sure. But I cross a line when I make myself look good by pushing you down. I cross a line when I make a joke that makes you feel less than who God has called you to be. It is sin. I'm called to encourage. Ephesians 5, 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Paul says, look, that stuff is out of bounds and we don't have time for it. We're to be giving thanks, we're to be encouraging, we're to be building up, never tearing down. James 1.26, let's just look at a couple passages again that just reiterate how we speak to one another is hugely important to God. James 1.26, if anyone thinks his religion, or he is religious without controlling his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Do you see the weight of that? His religion is useless if he doesn't control his tongue. That, whoa, whoa, James, too far, buddy. It was just a joke. No. How we speak to one another matters. 1 Peter 3.10, For the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. When we speak evil of other people, when we make jokes at other people's expense, when we tear down instead of build up, we rob ourselves of the ability to see life in good days because let's be honest, we're siding with the sinful nature. In those times, we're turning our back on the way God has called us to love one another. 
This one, uh, it weighs heavy on me. Jesus speaking, Matthew chapter 12. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. I don't want to stand before God and have him go, why would you say that to my son or daughter? And go, it was pretty funny though. Man, I got a laugh out of that. I felt big and strong. We will have to give an account for every careless word that we speak. That should be sobering to us, church. Colossians 4, 6. Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each other. Every word out of my mouth should be seasoned with grace that comes from Jesus. Should be seasoned with the gospel. I've been called to build up, not tear down. I've been called to bring reconciliation, not separation. Every word that comes out of my mouth should be seasoned with the grace of Jesus Christ. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you were called to be free, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. This is Paul writing to the church. This isn't Paul writing to the world. And he said, wake up. You're biting, devouring, and consuming one another. Wake up. And right after this, he goes into the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. He says, this is what it is to be in the kingdom of God. Stop biting one another. Stop picking at one another. Encourage. Never tear down. Verse 46 and 47. Believe this or not, the church actually enjoyed each other. What? Sounds crazy. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. They actually enjoyed being together to the point where it says they devoted themselves to meeting together. That idea of devotion meant nothing will stop me. It's this idea of prevailing strength. No matter what comes against me, This will happen. We will meet together. We will devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to to breaking bread. Like nothing will stop us. The church enjoyed being together. They met and it says that they they were joyful. They were happy to see one another. This was friends. This was family. This is where they found encouragement. This is where they found those that would pray over them and speak life over them. Because in most other areas of our lives, we're cut down. We're told what we've done wrong. We're criticized. But when they came together, there was joy because there was life there. And it says that they, they met in humility. They ate together humbly. Let's look at how Paul defines humility. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Make your own attitude that of Jesus Christ, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
When it says that they met together humbly, Paul says over in Philippians, let me tell you what that humility looks like. It looks like Jesus, who did nothing out of the selfishness. Uh, the NIV says out of vain conceit, but in humility considered others better than himself. Took on the form of a servant, even to the point of giving his own life. Jesus didn't walk into a gathering of believers. Jesus didn't walk into the synagogue or his time with his disciples and say, what can I get? He didn't walk in going, all right, everybody bow down, worship. And we've talked about it before. He's the only guy that could have. But he chose not to. Instead, he walked into every one of those situations, into every opportunity for community, and he said, how can I serve? What are their needs? Because their needs are greater than my own. So how can I serve them? And he used every gift that the Holy Spirit gave him to serve and build up those around him. And we're called to do the exact same. To walk into every small group, men's group, women's group, church service, coffee that we have with one another, not going, what can I get? But how can I serve my brothers and sisters in this? What are their needs? How has God wired me to serve? And how can I use those gifts in this context. We walk in going, man, I hope it's good today. I hope they do some songs I like. Hope the message is good. Otherwise, I probably wasted my morning. Instead of walking in going, I'm going to have an opportunity. Let's take Sunday mornings to be with 80 brothers and sisters. God, how can I serve them today? Who needs me to speak life? Who needs me to encourage? Who needs me to, to lay a hand on their shoulder and pray over them? Who needs the gifts that you've given me? How can I use them today? Do you see how backwards that is, how most of us walk into community? But this was normal for the believers. This was literally everyday life for the early church. How can I serve you? Finally, the last part of verse 47, the gate never closes. Did your mom ever teach you it's, it's polite to hold the door for the next person coming in? I hope so, Yes. Okay, if not, I'm going to teach you right now. It's polite to hold the door for the person coming after you. You ever had the one where you start holding the door, but they're coming from the car way too far off, and so you just stare at each other for about 30 seconds while they're coming? Because once you've made eye contact, you can't close the door, right? <laughs> or you can just pray you never see that person again in life ever because you've just labeled yourself. The early church never let the gate close behind them. There was always room for more. They were always inviting other people to belong. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those that were being saved. They lived the kind of community that the world saw and went, how can I get some of that? And at no point in time did they close the door. Sorry, we're full. We don't take your kind. We just don't have the time or the energy. They lived the kind of community that people were drawn to. And they were constantly inviting others to belong. You could have this kind of fellowship too. You could have this kind of community, this kind of life change too. And it comes through Jesus Christ. And people were coming to Jesus daily. And it doesn't say because they were the best darn evangelists you've ever seen. It describes the kind of community they had, the way they, they selflessly lived with one another, for one another. And it says that people were being added daily. There was always room for more. Everyone was invited to belong. And again, they lived the kind of community that people wanted to belong to. They were fulfilling the Great Commission by the simple act of loving one another. 
Jesus talks about that, and we've already looked at it in the last few weeks. When we have the kind of unity that he calls us to, the world will know that he sent us. The world will see him lifted up when we love one another. We make it so difficult, church. If we would just truly love one another and serve one another, people would see that and desire to be a part of the kingdom community we have. I believe it. We're trying to come up with the next greatest evangelism technique and okay, maybe we need to have this big thing downtown and maybe we need to, and look, those aren't bad. We probably do need to do those. But if people don't see us loving one another, no matter what the message is we tell them, they're going to look at our lives and go, you don't believe it. You guys don't even like getting together. I heard what you said about him. Who wants to be a part of that? They were filling the Great Commission by loving one another, by having true community and always inviting others into it. There's always room at the table for more. So as I was preparing this message, I'm going through, and, and with each thing, obviously, I, I point out scriptures and I go, yes, it's true. But when I step back and I kind of look at the pattern and I look at the whole, here's my initial thought. Lord, that's impossible, though. We'd literally have to be perfect. And I know I'm not. That's impossible to do, right? The early church did it, but for how long? They probably fell off pretty quick, though, right, Jesus? No one can live in that kind of community, right? And then I came to this passage in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I look at that and I say, much like Mary back in the Christmas story, but this is impossible. What? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. To him who is able to do, I love this wording, immeasurably more than all we can ask or even imagine. He is at work within us, and he will have glory in his church. He is able to knit us together in this kind of community if we are willing to follow where he leads.